Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Now, the real credit goes to my wonderful wife, Shirley. Shirley, would you stand? Give it. By, by God's grace, we've been married 49 years, 10 months, and one month today, or one day today. Not that I'm counting. But that would have not have happened if Jesus hadn't come into our life. And, and uh, you know, Dave is kind to say that. But even then, <clears throat> early in our ministry, it was like we were still trying to figure out what we were doing, you know. And uh, when God called me into ministry uh, from my career, as, as Dave said, I used to like to tell the students that, you know, one, as a criminal investigator, two of my two uh, skills were insurance investigations and interrogations. <laughs> and so, you know, my counselors didn't like my counseling style, but I got a lot of answers during my counseling sessions. <laughs> I want to tell you, <clears throat> it was good. But uh, every time we come, let's say eight years ago, around the 4th of July, we were here, Dave Pastor Dave allowed us to share three years ago. He allowed me to share. And then last year, we just showed up and just worshiped with you and had a great time. And, you know, I'm excited. And, you know, when, when Pastor Dave said that we could have gone home after the worship, that was true. But I did come a long way, so I'm glad that you get there. <laughs> and, uh, and it excites me to see what God is doing. You know, every time we come here, there's like a different season that God has taken this, this church through. And I think there's a different season that God is working in our country today. And, uh, you know, when we went back and prayed with the worship team, I want to tell you, it was powerful and excites me when I see what God is doing in the lives of this younger generation. Because, folks, that's where it's going to happen. Amen? That's where it's going to happen. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to be 75 in October, uh, October 2nd, if you want to make a note on that, you know, just, uh, cards and gifts. And, but Shirley and I are going to celebrate our... 50th anniversary in September, two months from yesterday, we're going to, I'll be 75, and, and uh, you know, we're in that season of life, Step, leaving Teen Challenge five years ago, retiring, whatever that means, you know, retiring, you know, so. I'm 70 years old, you know, it's, you know I'm, I'm a Caleb person, you know, I still, I'm 70, I got 11 more years to get to that mountain, amen, you know, so uh, help me, Lord, but um, you know, I'm excited about what God is doing as I travel across the country, trying to get a, a finger on the pulse of what God is doing. And you know, when the Lord called us into ministry so many years ago, I said, Lord, I, I, you know, starting a ministry like Teen Challenge, I have no idea how to do that. And, uh, you know, because my skill set, you know, as a Marine, we blow things up and, you know, this, uh, and, uh, um, and he said, that's all right, my son, that way you won't have to take credit when I do it. And so, you know, <laughs> It worked for me. It's still working, you know. I still don't know what I'm doing, but I'm having a lot of, we're having a lot of fun, you know. So uh, and as hard as it was leaving Teen Challenge, God is still opening the doors for us to impact, you know, leaders and raise up leaders. And, and I want to challenge my senior friends here today. That's, our, that's the season for us now is the things that God has instilled in us over decades is that, you know, they've got the enthusiasm. They got the energy. You, you know, there was one, I don't, I don't want to point out, there was one gal up here worshiping. I, I got tired just, you know, I was watching her. Just, and uh, uh, that's another season. But 
you know, we, we're, we want to invest in that next generation. Because I want to tell you something. I've learned something. With, with every time there's a new move of the Holy Spirit, there's a new revival that comes. It's never the way it was the last time. And we who experienced that revival the last time have to be very careful because from what I've seen, it's always the last generation that experienced the move of God that is critical of the next generation you know, because it's not happening the way it happened with them. God's creative. You know, he doesn't have to do it the same way every time. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this body this morning. Father, this group of worshipers. And Lord, we're on this journey together. We're excited, Father, about what's coming. But Lord, we're grieved in our heart by what we're experiencing. And so, Father, today I pray, Lord, and I thank you as my brother shared this morning when Pastor Dave shared for him what he thought was going to have to be the, his normal, Father, that, that, God, you did an incredible work in his heart. Father, you raised our expectations this morning. Father, we do not expect to leave this place the way we came in, not because I'm here, not because the worship team, not because of Pastor Dave, Father, but because you're here. And so, Father, meet with us. Lord, open up our, our eyes to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive what the Holy Spirit would speak. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1965, we were, my brother and I were, we, I grew up in inner city Toledo, and we were downtown, uh, I don't know what, doing something uh, right before my high school graduation, and, um, and I remember looking at my brother, and I said, Ron, let's join the Marine Corps, and he was the smartest of the two of us uh, until that day, and he goes, okay, you know, <laughs> And so we went to the Marine Corps recruiting office, and they had my favorite poster inside. Here's a guy in dress blues, young guy, you know, dress blues, and above the, above the picture said, the Marines are looking for a few good men. We went inside anyway, and so joined the United States Marine Corps. Now, I, I believed, I, see, 1965, when I graduated from high school, in America, freedom was still something that we cherished. Pride in our country was something that we cherished. We knew, you know, this is after World War II, after Korea, you know, and, and uh, that gen the generation before my generation, you know, that went and liberated, you know, 75% of the world from oppression. And, you know, we, we took no land. The only land we took in Europe and over in Asia is, is enough land to bury our, our dead. And so America was an exceptional uh, country, and we began to go. So when I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school, I felt like what we were being called to do when, when I uh, was being sent to Vietnam was a worthy cause. Now, when we, you know, we, we had some great training. I felt like we were well prepared for, for uh, combat, for, for uh, going to Vietnam. When, you know, every Marine, after basic training, Every Marine goes through infantry training because every Marine is an infantryman. And so uh, after that, well, then I was sent with a unit. We began training. We began to do different things. And, you know, I had this expectation of what it was going to be like. Cause I, and I'd said this before a couple years ago. You know, I knew what combat was, was uh, all about because uh, it was kind of like when you get married. <laughs> now, don't, don't go there. That's not what I meant. But what I meant was when you get married, you think you know what you're doing, but you don't. 
But see, I knew what combat was about because I had seen John Wayne in the sands of Iwo Jima three times. And there are some mature adults here this, this morning as I look around that remember Vic Morrow every Tuesday night on combat, you know? I mean, so I knew, you know, I had it all figured out. So we began training. You know, I had this, you know, this image of what, what it was going to be like. And I remember uh, we, were, we, we were going through this training to prepare us to go over to Vietnam. And, and uh, one day, we're, this is Southern California, Camp Pendleton. And uh, one day we're having first aid class. Now, the Marine Corps, uh, uh, we don't have medics, you know, like the Army. We have Navy corpsmen. You know, they, they come from, they're from the Navy, and they're corpsmen, and they like to be called doc. And they think they're doctors, but anyway, that's it. So, uh, so we were having first aid uh, class one day, and we're out here, we're out here in the you know the mountains of Southern California, and uh, this corpsman says, "All right, Marines," he said, "This afternoon we're going to show you how to treat snake bites for when you get to Vietnam." You know, we had our little red notebooks out. If any Marines here, you know, and I opened it up to the first aid section. He said, "All right, now, Marines," he said, "We have simplified this. We have made this so simple." even a Marine can remember. It's only three steps. So I, I, I wrote down, I, I put one, two, three, so he says, okay, number one, in Vietnam, when you get, by, get bit by a snake, number one, take a step. I thought, take a step, you know. He said, number two, sit down. He said, number three, you die. I looked up. You know, and I, you know, so I added number four, watch out for snakes, you know, just to, <laughs> and so, you know, so then he, you know, he starts laughing, ha, 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 you Marines are so stupid. So then he gets out this jar of, you know, whatever it is they put dead things in, you know, and he had this big jar with this rattlesnake in it, you know, and he was passing around for all of us to look at it. And I, you know, I remember this kid from Hollywood, you know, he was kind of a, anyway, he was kind of different, you know, and, and as they're passing around, you know, he gets this jar and he looks at it, you know, and this thing's bobbing up and down. He goes, whoa, you know, wow. <laughs> Set it backwards, whoa. And, uh, and so, you know, we're passing on. Then he says, all right, now, guys, you said uh, this is, it's fall here in Southern California. You know, the, the weather's cool and the snakes are hibernating, so you don't have to worry about, you know, about. And, you know, I mean, this is the old way of doing snake bites, you know, like, you, you, like a guy gets bit in the leg, so you make little cuts on his, uh, where the snake, you know, bit, bit him and the fangs and then you suck out the poison from the, their hairy leg. And uh, I looked around and there really wasn't anybody in my platoon that I really was that close to, you know. That, uh, you know. And uh, so then, you know, we went off for training. Well, there's a phenomena in California, some of you may have heard of it, it's called the Santa Ana. And this is a time when, you know, the, the, the heat goes sky high, the humidity drops, and the fire index is, is high, you know, and it's just, it's really hot. Now, the Marine Corps, uh, they come up with a, tr we, we had to get this training in before we went to Vietnam. And so, to make sure we got all this training in, we would get up early in the morning while it was still dark and while it was cool, and then we would run out to where we were going to have our training, stand there for a couple hours till it got hot and the instructor showed up and have our training. It was incredible, you know. Only the Marine Corps could have come up with that. And uh, so we're out there one day. Now I'm a squad leader, you know, and I got promoted P1 
PFC out of boot camp and I want to show, I'm going to be, I am gung-ho. And so I'm a squad leader. So we're standing, this is an infiltration course. I never saw anything like it in Vietnam, but the, but the infiltration course. So, uh, and when he come out there and finally said, go, I took off running. And, you know, and you would hit different obstacles and you do depend on what it was. Well, the first obstacle was like a shallow you know, like a shallow hole, like a, well, it was like a gra grave, but shallow grave, but it was just like a, a depression in the ground, you know, and what you were supposed to do at that is that you throw yourself on the ground with rough, roll over into the hole and take up a firing position. And so, I mean, when I saw that I was running, I went full John Wayne, man. I, I leaped through the air, hit the ground, screamed the top of my lungs, rolled over into the hole already in the hole, stretched out in the morning sun, <clears throat> was the biggest snake I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, you know, I was a kid. You remember Tarzan movies, you know, they would fall out of the trees, eat people. and stuff. I mean, and for a long time, I haven't checked, but for a long time, I held the record for capturing or sort of capturing the largest western diamondback rattlesnake they had found on Camp Pendleton. It was five foot nine inches long, had a head as big as your fist. It was about that big around in the middle. Now, as I was going down into the foxhole, you know, and, you know our, they, they say that our, our brain is like a, a, a complex computer. So... <laughs> And just say, yeah, you don't know my brother-in-law's <laughs> brain's like a BB rolling around a boxcar. But, so, but so as, as I was going down into the foxhole, my computer kicked in and said, if it is pinned to the ground underneath you, it cannot bite you. Well, that makes sense, you know. Well, like the space shuttle, they have a backup computer. And my backup computer said... Yeah, who's going to get it out from underneath you? <laughs> so, you know, so I kept rolling and, and I jumped up. And when I jumped up, this thing struck me and it, it bit me uh, in the, in the, right below the knee, but it's, its fangs got stuck in my fatigue pants. You know, so I'm looking down. I, I'm 17. First time away from home. First rattlesnake bite. You know, and... and I'm, I'm looking, this thing's stuck in my pant leg. And so, but we Marines are trained to respond in split seconds without hesitating. I brought that rifle over my head. And as I brought it down, I'd never been bit by a snake before. So I'm not sure what caused the muscle spasm that caused my knee to buckle, that my knee, and I brought the rifle down across my knee, knocking the snake you know, off of my pant leg, you know, hurting myself, you know, my rifle broke. And now I'm laying on the ground, and the snake, he's coiled up there. That, that was a big pile of snake there right there. And so I'm, I'm laying there, and, you know, this leg hurts a lot. And, and, uh, and I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to kick it with the other leg, you know, and I'm reaching back for my, you know, for my rifle. And I find my rifle, and I didn't know I broke it. So I reached back. I saw my rifle barrel, and so I grabbed that rifle barrel, and I whipped that baby over my head. And as I whipped that baby over my head, I have really good peripheral vision. And as I whipped that baby out of the corner of my right eye, I saw... The other half of my rifle still attached to the sling, you know, and as I was going like this, it went like, and then it came back and just, I mean, it smacked me in the face. 
I thought I broke my nose, and now I got blood just gushing out of my nose, you know, and the snake's still there. And so, and I'm, so I'm, I'm kicking it, I'm, I, wait, I'm, I'm finally, I, I hit it, I, I crushed its skull and, and broke its neck. Well, you know, I think I did because the neck area, it's kind of hard to define exactly where. And so now, I mean, I knew, okay, I've, I've got to find the corman. And uh, so I, I picked up the snake and, uh, and I've, I picked up my rifle by the sling and it was broken. It's kind of, you know, so my rifle's dangling for the time and I'm holding this snake. And so I saw the corman over there. So it's kind of like I'm, you know, and I'm holding this thing. And the snakes are kind of neat. If you're into that, I am not. Because when you kill them, they do not stop moving right away. So I come up to this corpsman. And, you know, there's a lot of activity going on. Guys are screaming. And so I'm standing behind him. Like, you know, remember, like we called Doc. I said, Doc. You know, he didn't move. Doc. You know, so finally, I hit him with my rifle barrel and I screamed, Doc, I've been bit by a snake. And this guy, as he's turning around, he says, as he's turning around, he says, that's ridiculous, Marine. They're not out this time of year. <laughs> now, you know, this is 65, okay? Glasses, you know, some of you have, maybe you just wear glasses to look real cool, you know? Glasses in a military night were not cool. I do not know how this guy got in the Navy. This guy had the thickest glass. I mean, it's like they were like Coke bottle bottoms, you know? And he turned around, as he turned around, he's looking at me for a second, and he sees the snake, and, and his eyes just went, whoop, you know? And then his face went white, and he fainted. I'm standing there like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, you know? And so they, they called a helicopter, put me on a helicopter, took me to the Naval Hospital of Balboa, and so I'm in the treatment room, you know, so in comes a Navy doctor. And he says, said, son, don't worry, it's going to be okay. I said, oh, good, you know. He said, uh, you see, the, the, a larger rattlesnake, does, a smaller rattlesnake gives you all its venom, but, but you know, a bigger one doesn't. I said, yes, sir, just gives you enough to kill you once. <laughs> and, and, you know, besides that, your heart stops, you know. So anyway, I thought, well, this is not, you know, this is not working out like I, and the instructors kind of took a kind of a, looked at me differently. A couple weeks later, we were, we were attacking the typical combat village. I uh, never saw anything like it in Vietnam, but the typical combat village in, in, in Camp Pendleton is that we were sneaking up on this, you know, uh, on this village, and they knew we were coming, but we had to be real safe. So we're going through this dry stream bed. Well, it had, the, the heat had broken. It started raining. It was raining and raining and raining. And, you know, because it's so dry, you know, when they, get, when they start getting rain, it, you know, just kind of didn't have anywhere to go. So we were, we were walking across this stream bed to sneak up behind the village. And uh, as we're walking across, I heard this like a roar, you know, it was like a, almost like a railroad, uh, a train coming off in the distance. And, and so I stopped, I'm listening, listening. I, I, the guy behind me, I said, are there any train tracks? I don't remember any train tracks. Do you remember any train tracks in here? He said, no. And so um, we're standing for a minute and then we look up and down this dry stream bed comes this big wall of water, flash flood, you know? So being Marines trained, organized, everybody started screaming, running, nah, you know, everybody running. And so I, I don't know if I went the right way or the wrong way, but I didn't make it to the hill, you know? And so I'm like, I'm real close and the, this wall, wall of water just sweeps me along, you know? Well, there was, there was a tree, I don't know how many yards down, I grabbed a hold of this tree, my rifle just got ripped out of my hand. This is a second rifle, I hadn't been to combat yet, you know, and so I'm hanging on to that tree, you know, and so finally, I don't know, two or three hours later, they're out there looking for my body, everybody's liberty got canceled because we got to go out and look for that, you know, 
spastic guy. And so they found me, took me to the hospital. Uh, the next day, my chief instructor came in, shook his head. He said, we, uh, last night we voted you least likely to succeed if you live long enough to get to Vietnam, you know. And so, I, you know, this was, I'm not off to a good start here. And, uh, but we, you know, we finally got to Vietnam, you know, November 1965. Man, I knew the war was going to be over because the Marines had landed. And, uh, you know, so I was not prepared, you know, what we call that, that first contact. When my company of 219 Marines was caught in an open field, uh, uh, we were ambushed by a 650-man Viet Cong battalion. And I remember I was talking to my platoon sergeant, a Korean War veteran, when the enemy opened fire, 50 caliber machine gun round, hit him in the head, killing him instantly. And I remember as I began throwing myself down to the ground, uh, the, uh, my right eye saw Danny, my best friend, uh, who had gone through all the training with me, hit in the chest by that 50 caliber machine gun, killed instantly. And I remember laying on the ground, firing at an enemy. All I could see is the muzzle flashes in the jungle tree line where they were shooting at us. And then after being pinned down there for about 10, 15 minutes, our company commander told us to assault the tree line. And so we got up, and I knew I, I, I wasn't going to ever make it to that tree line. The battle was over in about 45 minutes, but in that 45 minutes, my company went from, two, from 20, 219 Marines to 78 that had not been killed or wounded. You know, I was 18. I had never seen anybody die before. And I'd never seen anybody die violently like that. And so my unit was taken out of the field and the Marine Corps was starting a pacification program where Marines and a, 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 whole, a squad of Marines, 12 Marines and one Navy Corps, we would go live in the villages. And our goal was to take uh, the countryside away. See, the enemy, the Viet Cong, the communists operated at night. The South Vietnamese Army would go back to their bases. They'd go out during the daytime. But at night, the, the, the Viet Cong guerrillas controlled the, the night. And so we were going to take guerrilla warfare to their own backyard. And so we lived in these villages. We, we trained the local militia. We, we ate with them. We lived with them. We uh, slept with them. We fought with them, bled with them, and at times died with them to win the hearts and minds. We'd been there for a couple of months, and I was a point man. I, you know, I, I would, when the, the squad would go out on patrols, I would walk point point, you avoid the ambushes, avoid the booby traps, you know, find the enemy, kill them, and then get your, your squad back to your base camp. And uh, I'd been there a couple months, and we got a new squad leader one day. Long story short, instead, I got in an argument with him, and instead of walking point that night, he put me at the back of the squad, and uh, that night, that 13-man Marine patrol walked into a 65-man Viet Cong ambush. Myself and two Marines behind me were blown off the trail by a mine. Everybody in front of me was, was killed uh, instantly. My, the new squad leader was shot 27 different times. And I remember laying in the rice paddy, uh, stunned by the concussion. I remember just laying there in a fog, you know, trying to comprehend what was going on. I couldn't move. I just laid there in this rice paddy, and, and the enemy came out of the jungle almost like ghosts, you know, and they took the equipment, anybody that was still alive they killed and then disappeared two minutes later there's they're gone and it was i don't know how 10 minutes maybe i my, began to get my senses back i heard uh, uh moaning and the two guys behind me had absorbed all the uh, impact of the explosion behind me 
and uh, I got them up against the, the rice paddy dike, and I, I kept, you know, they're, they're hurt, they're really serious, and, and yet I was afraid that the enemy would hear us and come back and, and kill us. I, got, I found the radio, fortunately, it called for a, we always had a platoon on standby, and that platoon, uh, you know, showed up. They took the two wounded Marines, put them on a helicopter, sent them back to the rear, and then they took the 10 Marines, uh, put them in the body bags, and put them and me on a helicopter to go back to our rear. I got up the next morning and they said that uh, the two guys, uh, and I cannot remember their names, uh, they didn't make it. And, uh, and I was the only guy that survived that ambush. And you know, friends, I would carry that guilt for 23 years of surviving. You know, we joked about the time we'd go home and, and, uh, and I knew that that time would never come because men continued to die around me constantly. But after I did two tours back to back, I was wounded twice. Finally, that day came to, to come home. And when I came home, uh, I came back to a different country. Two years, 1967, when I come home, America had been watching Vietnam on our TV sets every night in our living rooms. And unfortunately, what we saw was a distorted picture of Vietnam. And it's still happening today. And the media, you know, no, and I asked the guys that fought there, nobody, nobody likes war, nobody wants war, but you know, sometimes you have to, there is a just war. And, and so, but when I came home, you know, sometimes feelings, they may not be based on reality, but they're real to you. And for many of us as veterans, we were made to feel that our country was embarrassed by us. My, my, my parent, my mother said when I got home, she said, son, I'm glad you're alive. I'm glad you're okay. But this Vietnam thing, awkward was not the term yet, you know, uh, you know, like, uh, but it was like, oh, but this is embarrassing. So let's do this. Let's just not talk about it. And let's just move on with our life. Well, that sounded good. They really did. Uh, the only problem was that I, I couldn't forget. Uh, I mean, I was glad to be alive, but I couldn't forget because see, when I would go to bed at night, I would and close my eyes, I would remember all over again. But I was fortunate because I was still in the Marine Corps and I was surrounded by other Marines just like me. I could look at their uniform, I could see the ribbons, I could know what they did, what they'd been through, and there was that camaraderie, fellowship. And so I was in the States for three years. I, uh, I, I had a really great job as a marksmanship instructor. My, my platoons were all qualified in the high 90s. I'd always shot expert. And, and uh, you know, so I had this great job. I had every night off, every weekend off. A family down in Savannah, Georgia adopted me. I was the son they never had. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, just, it was great. It was, it was wonderful. And the Marine Corps thought, that just ain't right. That's just not right. And so they, they said, uh, they sent me to DI school. To, to be interviewed to be a drill instructor, I tried every way I could to flunk that test. I tried everything I could think. And then they used child psychology on me. I hate that. The, 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 the chief drill instructor looked at me and said, Sergeant, did you earn those stripes or were they just given to you? I earned them. He said, good, now you're going to work for them. So I'm going to DI school. Well, I was a drill instructor for a year and a half. That was interesting. I had recruits that were older than I was. I mean, I, I was not old enough to drink legally in South Carolina, you know. But they didn't know that because I was that crazy guy that smiled all the time and, you know, this guy did watch that guy. He is just 
And so uh, I did that for a year and a half. I re-enlisted to be a CID investigator. You know, Leroy Jethro Gibbs, Joseph, with a better haircut. I was a, a CID investigator for about 20 years. In 1970, I volunteered to go back to Vietnam. And so, uh, and people, after I became a Christian, they would say, dude, what was wrong? Why would you volunteer to go back to Vietnam? And I would just kind of laugh and say, well, I'm a Marine. And, you know, we just ain't that smart. <laughs> and uh, now we're... We're the only ones who can say that. Okay, I'll just let you know. No, and uh, so uh, I got back to Vietnam, long story short, June 14th, 1970, while leading my platoon uh, um, on a search and destroy mission. I had a grenade go off at my feet. I stood up and was shot twice. And while I was laying on the ground, I was bayoneted by a North Vietnamese soldier. And I want to tell you, my mind was like this was a nightmare. And, and I was going to wake up and be somewhere else. But the nightmare just continued to to go and somehow I managed to get up, take a few steps, fall to the ground, get up, take a few steps and finally fell to the ground. And Vietnam's a beautiful country. I remember laying on the ground, looking up into a blue sky, looking at the palm trees and, and there was a, a freshly planted rice paddy just off the trail and you know the wind was rippling the emerald green rice stalks. And as I lay on that trail, I, I felt pain like I had never ever felt in my life. And I, you know, I, and I, I just wanted to close my eyes and just have it be over. You know, just, I knew I was going to die on that trail. And then all of a sudden I was being dragged across the field and there was a moment of terror because I thought it was the Viet Cong that had me. And I knew that was, that was not going to bode well. But I heard my corpsman say, we got you, we got you. And they drug me to safety and <laughs> trying, he was trying to stop the bleeding. A helicopter came, a supply helicopter. There was no medevac flights available. They put me in this big empty uh, twin rotor helicopter and took me to back to China Beach, Da Nang, and to uh, a mash, like a mash hospital. And I remember being in triage, you know, the sights, the smells, the smell of blood, the, the charred flesh, and I was not the only casualty, and uh, things that I'll never forget. And I remember the doctor, you know, putting a mask on my face and said, we're going to take you to surgery. I was in and out of consciousness over the next six days. But six days later, I woke up in this intensive care ward. And uh, my body was ripped apart. I had 70 shrapnel wounds. Um, I had burns. I had two bullet wounds. One bullet shattered my right elbow. One went into my stomach. The bayonet had gone through my intestines and perforated my bowels. And, and I was, my head was the size of a basketball and my eyes were, it was all black and blue. And as I lay on that bed, I watched my twin brother walk past my bed and stop a doctor and said, I'm Sergeant Helly's brother, how's he doing? And the doctor just looked at him, shook his head. He said, son, we, we've done everything we can, but your brother's gonna die. And he stood there for a moment and he said, well, could you tell me where he's at? They said he's in this ward, but I can't find him. He had apparently walked past me. And, uh, and I remember the doctor took him by the arm. I could see him out of the corner of my eye. My, now, my, my eyes were so swollen and black and blue, you couldn't tell that they were open. So the doctor took him by one arm, and then a nurse came up behind him and took the other arm and just stopped at the end of my bed. And my brother just stood there at the end of my bed looking at this mass of human rubble, you know, with all these open wounds from head to toe. And he just stood there for a moment. And then literally I could see the look of recognition on his face as he recognized that that was me. And his face just went white. And he stood there and he, be, and he began to weep. 
And he took a step to my bed and his legs buckled underneath him and he just fell at the end of my bed, clutching the sheets at the end of my bed and just began sobbing. You know, guys, I was, I was 22. I was three months from my 23rd birthday. This is my third time being wounded. And I knew this time, you know, that uh, I, I, I felt a fear unlike anything that I had ever felt in three tours of combat. I didn't want to die. And I remember just closing my eyes and praying in my heart, said, God, if there really is a God, if you let me live, I'll do anything you want. And I went to sleep. It was a couple weeks later when, you know, they told my brother that, he said, Ron, your brother's going to live. He's messed up, but, but he's turned the corner. And then it was another week before they could put me on a flight home, uh, on a flight to, we were on our way to Japan, and I started bleeding internally on the plane. They took me off. I was in Yokosuka Naval Hospital for about three or four weeks, five surgeries, and then back on a plane back to uh, Great Lakes Naval Hospital in Chicago. You know, they took me in. They started changing my bandages. The doctor said, yeah, you got gangrene in your right leg. We're going to have to take it off. Uh, and then one night I woke up, and there was a doctor standing. My orthopedic doctor was standing by my bed. And when he saw I was awake, you know, he said, uh, he said hey, Raj, he said, uh, just kind of smiled, shaking, said, he said, that gangrene is gone. He says, gangrene doesn't just go away. And he was a Navy doctor, and I was a Marine. So I said, Doc, Marines are tough. <laughs> He just shook his head, walked away. Well, then what, what in my, my arm, they found a bone infection. Same doctor. So he said, okay, uh, we had a bone infection, so we're going to have to amputate your arm above the elbow to stop the bone infection. You know? And that was, not, that was rhetorical. That wasn't, he wasn't asking, what do you think? And uh, so I remember coming out of recovery. You remember, you know, Navy, they like to play tricks on Marines. So when I'm coming out of the recovery, I was holding my right hand. And I thought, those guys, you know, they didn't throw the parts away. You know, just <laughs> let me, you know. But then my fingers moved. And so, you know, as the doctor came in, he said, you know, he just looked at me. He said, you know, I we were all prepared to amputate your arm. He said, just something compelled me to cut it open. And we cut it open. I said, and, you know, there was no bone infection. So he said, we did this, this, and this, a bunch of medical stuff. Which I have no idea what that meant, you know. And, and uh, so then they began to tell me, okay, you're going to be here about two years, maybe more. We're going to have surgery, therapy, recovery, more surgery, therapy, recovery. You're going to put pins and plates in your uh, uh, We're going to put uh, pins and plates in your legs. You're going to have leg braces. You're going to have about 15% use of your right arm. You have shrapnel on your eyes. It's going to cause you to go blind. Uh, you won't be able to have any children, and kind of on and on. They went to encourage me. <laughs> well, nine months later, 26 operations, four plastic surgery operations. I, yeah, I know. I, I didn't always look this good. <laughs> you know, nine months later, walked out of the hospital, you know, went to, be, became a criminal investigator. Uh, almost a year later, I met my wife, convinced her I was normal. <laughs> and we got married and my life began to fall apart. You know, my career was going up. My personal life was going down because, see, there was a time of day that I hated, and that was the time of day when I would finally have to go to bed. And when I'd go to sleep, I'd be standing in a field, and the grenade is at my feet, and I cannot get away. And I struggle, I kick, I try to, to, to pick it up, to throw it, to turn around, and finally I wake up soaking wet with sweat, my heart beating, and if I could go to sleep again, I'd see Danny laying on the ground looking up at me through lifeless eyes. I relived Vietnam every single night for four and a half years. 
You know, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. My, my real dad left when I was four, but my mom was an alcoholic and my stepdad was a workaholic. And you know, I love my mom. You know, you only get one mom. And, uh, and I love my stepdad. He adopted me, gave his name, and, and raised me as his son. But you know something? I hated my mom being an alcoholic. And I hated my stepdad being a workaholic and never there. And one day I woke up and realized what I had hated, I had become. Well, we went to this church, a traditional church. Um, pretty sure it was Easter because they had the white flowers, you know, the white. Uh, and um, I did not know that Shirley, and now this particular denomination, my stepdad used to take us. I was never in any danger of meeting a radical like you guys this morning. <laughs> never, never and, and so uh, I did not know that Shirley filled out a, you know, would like a visit from the pastor card. And none of you are going to be able to relate to this, so just bear with me. We were fighting one night after work and looked out the window, and the pastor of that church is walking up the driveway. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, what do you do? And we went to the door, and, you know, anyway, so we... And so he started talking about inviting us to be part of a Bible study. And, you know, and I surely said, okay. And I thought, well, okay, maybe there'll be some good prospects for business here, you know. And, and so they had a, we were in this group, nine couples, uh, marriage group. And uh, they were going around the room asking icebreaker questions. You know what those are. Those are questions that make you feel comfortable uh, when you know you're not comfortable with those kind of people. And so, and the last question was, when was, when was God real in your life? Well, you know, church, I mean, I'm a, the phony that I was, here I was, I was trying to think of something that sounded religious uh, to, so I could fit in with this group of people. And I had an experience like never before and never after. As I was sitting in that room, as they were going around the room answering that question, it was like I was lifted up out of that room. And I, I looked down, I saw a man in another room and I saw him bloody and bleeding. And I heard him say, God, if there really is a God, if you let me live, I'll do anything you want. And I was back in that room. Well, you know, that should have been, I mean, it's like a mirror was held in front of my face and I, that should have been a wake-up call, you know? But I told you, you know, Marines, we're not, uh, you know, we're not the sharpest bulb in the drawer. I mean, the brightest knife in the, in the box. And so it was like six months before, you know, I began to realize, and surely Thanksgiving Day, 1974, she said, I'm leaving you. So I love you, but you're killing me too. And God brought me to rock bottom. And we, we uh, I thought I was going to have a lot of fun now that I'm single again. I wasn't because all these people at that place were calling, were praying for you, were praying for I had a guy follow me. I almost shot a guy in my, in, one, in the home group because he was following me. I thought, you know, People didn't like me back then, and you know, and uh, so uh, they're praying for us. So Shirley said, "We need to get together." Yeah, we wanted our divorce. You know, we wanted to part as friends. You know, be amiable about it. So I said, "Let's meet in a public place where you know she can't do me any harm." Uh, I mean, I live in the South, you know, and there's a justifiable defense. You know, like he needed killing, and and um, so uh, 
And we got together and we're talking and we're holding hands, you know, and, I, I, and she said, you know, unless we put God first, we're not going to make it. And man, I want to tell you what, a light bulb went off inside. And we went back to her apartment, knelt by the bed and just cried out from a broken heart. Probably didn't do it right. But I remember say, God, if there really is a God, if you let me live, I'll do Or No, that was the first, that came back to me. But we began to pray, you know, say, Lord, I don't know if you can do anything with somebody like me, but if you can, here I am. And church, I want to tell you that every morning, emotionally, when I got up, I, I felt like I was putting on a, a backpack of about 100 pounds of emotional combat gear. And when I said that prayer, probably not theologically correct, but from a broken heart, that weight just fell to the ground. And that night, like our friend up here, you know, when I closed my eyes that night, for the first time in four and a half years, the nightmares of Vietnam stopped forever. God healed, amen. God healed my marriage. I have two children. The doctor said I'd never have. I've got five grandchildren. And uh, I've, I've, in October, I'll be making my 20th mission trip back to Vietnam. And, uh, but you know, the greatest, the greatest honor in our life was that God said that I'm going to put you working with hurting people that were just like you. And God gave us the opportunity to be, be part of Teen Challenge for 40 years. You know, God has done some amazing things in, in many of you's lives here today. You can sense that when the Holy Spirit was moving. But you know, that does not mean that there are some of you that are still wounded from your past. And for some reason, you've not quite yet been able to let go of it or even to feel that you, you know, that God you know, would heal you. Would, and, and I want to tell you, there's some ladies here that you have had things happen to you, abuse, maybe traumatic things, rape, maybe you, you had an abortion or whatever. Uh, other people look at you now and, and admire you, but yet you look in the mirror and, and, you know, you don't see that same person. There's some of you guys here that you're trying to, maybe like me, that you, you know, I didn't realize for years that I joined the Marine Corps to prove to my mother who told me for 10 years that I was going to never amount to anything. I was going to be a bum like my real dad, that I was going to prove to her that I was going to make something in my life. And at, and at that time before Jesus came into my life, I looked at my life and I was that bum. I was that person and my mother prophesied that I would be. But Jesus, and the only reason I can tell this story today where a lot of veterans today still can't talk about it because it's still too painful is because Jesus Christ came into an infected heart that was full of hate, fear, guilt, shame. And he, he came into my heart and he cleansed all that infection away. And then he closed it up and he allowed it to heal. You know, I've still, I've still got scars all over my body. Just take my word. Trust me. You know, no show and tell today. I've got, I've got scars all over my body. But there's a difference between a scar and a wound. Because see, a scar doesn't hurt. But a wound does. And the only reason I can tell is because Jesus Christ healed my wounded, broken heart. And then gave me a message to share with, you don't have to go to Iraq, Afghanistan, or Vietnam today. Our culture is geared to wound you. And so I believe that we are involved in the greatest spiritual warfare that I have seen in my lifetime. You know, Shirley and I got saved at the tail end of the Jesus 
revolution, the Jesus movement. You know, the hippies in California, you know, were dropping out, doing drugs, sex, rock and roll. They, they were looking for peace and love. And then guess what? Jesus showed up at who is peace and love. And thousands of those hippies embraced Jesus. And within a few years in the churches like Calvary Chapel and, 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 and others like that, you couldn't tell the people that used to be the hippies, you know, from the people there. All the hippies are still there. I, you know, I have some in my family. But, um, but, you know, they met Jesus who was peace and love. And it was a great move of God. I mean, we'd go to California and, and, you know, there would be, you know, like bumper stickers, uh, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, you know, 20 years later, you go there and the bumper sticker says, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. I mean, that's the change in the culture. And I believe we're fighting the greatest battle. And let me just say this. I've, there's two churches in America. There's uh, Big C, you know, Church Big C. That's the true church of Jesus Christ. Born again, spirit-filled, love Jesus with all their heart. And then there's small C, just everybody else. Now, I'm part of the church, so if I'm not part of the solution, I'm part of the problem. But I want to be part of the solution. The church, small c, a generation ago, decided that they did not want to engage this culture war. And so they retreated to their churches and said, if you come here, we'll, we'll, we'll preach at you. But we're not going out there. We're not going to talk about the hot button issues you know, the political issues, abortion, homosexuality, immorality. We don't want to talk about that. We're not going to engage it. And so we abandon at least a generation of our young people to be influenced by the world. And we're paying for it today. But I want to tell you, it's, it's, and, and maybe you're, you know, sometimes my wife she said, I can't watch the news anymore. We can look at what's happening in our country and we can be overwhelmed by what's happening and, and not realize that we have, we have the greatest opportunity to share the gospel that we're, because of all that anger, all that rage, there are people that are wounded, that are brokenhearted, and they want to see something real. And we've got it. And we've got it. We've got the answer. And so we need to engage the culture. You know, some years ago, uh, we were in California at uh, um, Coronado Island. Coronado Island is where the Navy SEALs have their training. Now, Navy SEALs, of, of all the, you know, uh, the Marines have the hardest boot camp, but when you talk about special ops like Rangers, like Green Berets, like, you know, the Navy SEALs, they are probably the best trained, the most elite special units that we have. And they go through incredible training. When you get to Coronado, you know, you got, they're going to make you run farther than you've ever run before. They're going to make you swim farther than you ever thought you could swim before. They're going to make you throw yourself out of a perfectly good airplane. And, and they're going to they're be screaming and yelling at you. And, and uh, you know, uh, outside the headquarters, got a, there's a bell. Right there, there's a bell. And, and as you're going through training, and these instructors are screaming and yelling, saying, you want to quit? You want to quit? Ring the bell! Ring the bell. And they're constant. I mean, they're just, and they're what? 80% if out of every 100 Navy SEAL candidates, 80% of them are going to ring the bell. They're going to quit. Now, when they go out there and they ring that bell, ding, 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 they're done. Now, they're not mocked. They're not ridiculed. They're not harassed. They go to their barracks. They pack up their stuff. They get their reassignment and they go somewhere else. But you know, there's that 20%. 20% that says, I've got a dream, I've got a goal, and I, I will do whatever it takes 
to be one of the best of the best of the best to put on that Navy, <clears throat> Navy SEAL team badge. They will not quit. Ever. <clears throat> Remember I said my favorite Marine Corps recruiting poster? The Marines are looking for a few good men. Well, you know, since I've, you know, in my life, and especially after I got out of the military, we have had, uh, in the armed services, we have had a number of um, apparently focus group tested slogans. Some of you remember a few years ago, Army of One? And I thought, what moron thought of that? <laughs> Army of One. I'm going to Iraq. Army of One. <laughs> you know, it's like, good, good luck. You know? Now, I like Army Strong. I like that. That's, that's cool. You know? And in the Navy, it used to be, it's not a job, but it's an adventure. And, you know, fly high with that. I mean, they, and they have a, so I started looking back. I love history. Uh, you say, you're an old guy, but yeah, but I like history. And so I was researching America's godly heritage. Church, we have to realize our spiritual heritage started when Columbus left Spain and found the new world. He didn't just like, oop, bumped into the new world. He was a man of God. They were like this close to turn around. There was a mutiny. They were going to throw him overboard. He says, give me one more day. Oh, what a question. Next day, the new world. You know, and, and so, and then all the godly heritage, our founding, the Mayflower Compact, the, the covenant that we made to be people of God, our, her, our spiritual heritage is, is rich, and we're not being taught that. And so I started looking into the spiritual, or the, the history of the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps was founded November 10th, 1775, a year, be, or not quite a year, but you know, the year before we got our independence. And so when the Marine Corps was interviewing, recruiting people, the recruiting slogan was, the Marines are looking for a few good men. This was not a focus group tested slogan because it was based on a biblical person, a person by the name of Gideon, Judges chapter seven. Pastor Dave will fact check me on that, but I think it's chapter seven, and, you know, if you remember the story, Gideon, Israel had sinned. God took his blessing, protection off them. They were oppressed by the Midianites. You know, the Midianites had come and steal all their stuff. And so Gideon, he's, he's hiding. He's got a little bit of grain. He's, got, he's making the last batch of biscuits and gravy. You know, I'm a Southerner. He's making the last batch of biscuits and gravy before they come and take everything away from him. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Oh, thou mighty man of valor. Now, if that was me, I'd be. You talking to me? And, and the Lord, the angel of the Lord said, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. He got excited, sacrificed to the Lord. And then he, he sent out a recruiting call through the whole nation of Israel. 32,000 recruits showed up. Awesome. Now, the Midianites have 135,000 men, but hey, it's a good start. So 30,000 people showed up. And so God said, you got too many. He says, what? You got too many. So Gideon goes out and he says, all right, guys, we're going to battle and we're going to fight the Midianites. Yay! You know, and, 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 you know, and some of you are going to get killed. Yay! And, and, and if anybody wants to go home now, it's, this is a good time and the dust flies. And then, you know, when it's all, there's like 10,000. Okay, well, you know, we're only outnumbered 13 and a half to one, but it's still better. God says, you have too many. You have too many. And so he got them down to 300 men. 
And the, Holy, the, the God of Israel said, now you have just enough. Friends, the United States Marine Corps, 1775, said we're not just looking for anybody. We are looking for men of godly character and integrity like Gideon. Church, how can we settle for anything less? God is doing something, but you know what? He has to heal us of our hurts first. He has to, he has to heal us of our insecurities. You know, that, 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 that fear that keeps us from reaching out to those hurting people around us that will equip us. You know, we're, we're, we don't think that we have what it takes to go into the battle to take on the enemy. But you know, this year I've been encouraged. You know, you look at the, if you look at the news, you will be discouraged. But I want to tell you something. God is moving. He is moving in ways that, you know, and we may not see all that, but I, I'm getting a feeling that some of you here know what I'm talking about, you know, that there, God is moving. And all he's doing is like, he's got the ability, but he's looking for those few good men, women, who will step up and say, here I am, Lord, use me. I remember as I was, you know, after the last election, all the turmoil, and I said, God, you're bigger than all this stuff that's happening. And he reminded me of when the, uh, the Lord spoke to Abraham. You know, he took him, he was looking down at Sodom and Gomorrah where his nephew was, and God said, I'm gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their unrighteousness. And Abe, you know, he said, would you do, this is interesting, in, in Genesis, we need to remember this. Abraham asked the Lord the question, said, would the God of the earth do right? In other words, like you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked, will you? And he said, no, count on it. I, the Lord, will always do what's right. And, he, and, and Abraham got him from 50 all the way down to 10. He said, I'll spare Sodom even if there's 10 righteous men. Church, how many millions of Christians do we have around the nation right now that are praying, interceding, asking God to fulfill 2 Chronicles seven fourteen? You know, millions. I remember when, when Elisha's servant went outside to get some breakfast sandwiches, you know, and, and, he, and here's a Syrian army surrounded him. You know, he runs back inside. He said, dude, we're toast. I mean, we're, we're you know, and, and Elisha looked at him. He said, Lord, open up his eyes to see that they that are with us are more than they that are against us. And then I've got a verse in my Bible that says we are more than conquerors through Christ. And a scripture that says with God, nothing is impossible. So we have to choose to say, okay, who are we gonna believe? We're gonna believe CNN or my God who serves. And what he's looking for is a few good men. I wanted the worship team to come. Would you stand with me this morning? As we close, and Pastor Dave, I'm, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. We, we don't know when the next time that we'll be able to, to, to come here. We didn't, we didn't know we were gonna be here uh, this time. We had a Presbyterian church and I was gonna, you know, I had a whole bunch of books I was gonna bring. I had three services over three weekends and the Presbyterians got excited about Jesus and brought every book, you know, so, I, so, but, so you guys apparently didn't need them. So, uh, but God is looking, he is recruiting and he's looking for, you know, and you're thinking, I can't do that. You're, you're right, you and I can't. When I started Teen Child, I said, God, I can't do that. And he said, I know, but I can't. And so you say, Lord, I don't know if I have, you do, and he does. And all he's asking you to do is step out in faith. But I wanna tell you something, if you're still here and you know that you're still wounded, 
If you know, I want to make two challenges today. For those of you who are struggling with, with fear of stepping out into the, into the fray, I want to ask you to, in a moment as, they begin, as we begin to worship to step forward. And I also want to say, if you're here and maybe you've heard about Jesus, you've seen what Jesus is doing in these other people's lives, or, but you're, you're already a Christian, but you're still wounded because you still carry the memories of the things that people did or did not do that left you hurt. God wants to heal you right where you are. God wants to equip you to be a warrior for the kingdom. And as we begin to worship, I just want you to come. We're going to stand right along here and, and ask God to touch you in a special way. Let's just begin to worship him. And, and if that's you, you just step out. Don't wait for somebody else. Just step out right now and just come. We're going to pray for you all across the front of this church. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. God, give us courage, Father. Lord, the battle is yours. And you're just asking us, Father, to show up. Lord, for my brothers and sisters that are still wounded because of things that somebody did to them, said to them, Father, let them come today. Let and just touch them. And Father, their wounds will be healed and the testimony will, like my testimony, will be theirs. Father, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Let's just worship him this morning. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.